You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and this is episode 72. Uh, with me today are two of our regular panelists. We have freelance writer Rob Zachney. It is too damn hot to podcast. I agree. And freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Pretty soon it's going to be like the number of the episode is the temperature outside, except we need to be on like 102 right now. You guys were off playing pinball last weekend and did not invite me. It would have been a long trip for you. We went to New Hampshire. You live in D.C. or something, don't you? Still going to cry. Okay, you can cry. Uh, with us today is a very special guest, a uh, longtime friend and colleague in the tech writing business, and the man who assembled my amazing supercomputer. Now that it's actually uh, working. Now that it's actually working. Uh, formerly of Extreme Tech, now a freelance writer who blogs at improbableinsights.com, uh, Mr. Lloyd Case. Lloyd, Hi. so glad you could be here. Good to be here. It's a 77 degrees here in, on the West Coast. You're out there uh, in, in Sunnyvale. My wife is in Sunnyvale at the moment, so if you see her walking by, say hi. Uh, if I recognize her. You won't. <laughs> uh, so uh, today's topic is something is a topic that Lloyd suggested. He suggested actually last year when we started the podcast, said, you know, this is something initially you might want to tackle. And it's something, you know, I put in my folder of topics. And it was hunting around for a guest for this week, and Lloyd said, well, I can come on and let's do that topic. And the topic is uh, how technology has affected strategy games. And we can talk about how technology has affected games in general, but I really want to focus on uh, the stra strategy genre and how advances in technology, changes in technology, have affected how games have been designed. Uh, because it's easy to talk about how you know different designs affect other designs, but how technology and the hardware itself changes how we see games, how they're marketed, and how they're built. Um, so, Lloyd, you're the expert here, and you're the guest, so I want you to start. What do you think has been the number one change, technological change, well, that has affected how people affect strategy, uh, see strategy games? In, or, in the past couple of years, I think the big thing has been the explosion of different platforms. Now that you have anywhere from handheld devices all the way to PCs, all of which can handle certainly strategy games, I think we're seeing a much broader audience uh, picking up on some of these games now. I was, um, I have a friend of mine who actually is, a, not a friend, a colleague more, who is the one of the principals at Days of Wonder, which is actually a board game company, right? You wouldn't think of them as being heavily into technology. The two founders of Dave's of Wonder were actually former tech executives who decided they wanted to do something different. They started this board game company, and then they grew it. And, of course, they did a PC version of um, one of their railroad games, and they did also have an online website. And now he told me recently that uh, their iPad version of Small World, which is one of their strategy games, was yep. profitable on day one launch of the iPad. All right, I so. believe it. It's it's a brilliant implementation of bringing that, that board game feel directly to the PC. I mean, right. to, and, to, to a piece of technology, not to a PC. Right. And so while my primary platform for my own gaming is still the PC, it's interesting to see all these different platforms, diverse platforms. Uh, you know, and, and, and Julian's right. The, the iPad implementation of smaller is very cool because it's very board game-like, and yet it's much quicker to get into than a board game because there's no setup time or any of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, People, a lot of people are listening to our show, and we have a very PC-heavy audience. I mean, I know where my bread is buttered is on the PC side. <laughs> uh, and they'll look at, you know, all these, they look at the console games, they look at the DS games, they look at the iPhone, the iPad games. 
And they say, well, yeah, these are strategy games, these are board games, but, you know, these aren't our games. These well, but I, I think that those people need to, like, drink more heavily or something because because <laughs> way ahead I mean, of them julian <laughs> because because i mean i understand what you mean there are some kinds of games and it has to do with interface more than it has to do with like whether it's a pc i don't really give a crap what's sitting behind my screen right um, i still do probably more gaming on what happens to be a pc or a mac or a laptop than on something that is a lockdown piece of console hardware. But mm -hmm. that's mostly a function of the fact that I like to play games that require lots of hotkeys and need a 24-inch screen and need a mouse because the interfaces are so fiddly because they're complicated. Right? right. I mean you can't you can't you can't recreate Hearts of Iron or or in some ways you can't even create Civilization 4 on a, a console without removing layers of complexity. And sometimes that's great. I think, I think Civ Revolutions is actually an amazing game. I think it's it done is. a lot it's to grow strategy gamers. I think that's been sort of like a great little garden to grow a new generation in. Especially but, on the iPhone. Yeah, but it's not the same game, right? And, no. and you know, you're not going to play Sins of a Solar Empire on a, on a 720p screen, right? You just can't fit all the interface bits. Right, but I think that all goes back to what uh, Bruce has brought up in the past with um, you know, what killed strategy games and sims was this expectation that as your computer grew more powerful and could do more and simulate more, well, damn well better then. Um, and I think they're, you know, just going back to my experience, um, I didn't play board games when I, grew, when I was growing up. Um, and, well, <laughs> but one of the reasons I didn't do that... But he's only 12 now, so he's still got yeah. time. <laughs> Anyway, one of the reasons I didn't do that is because I looked at board games, and for some reason I looked at them and I thought, well, of course that made sense when you didn't have this incredible box that could play these amazing strategy games. Um, but now that we have that box, who the hell needs the cardboard and the chips and all that stuff? I want something that can have as much math and um, rules in it as possible. Well, and I, I, I wanna, Rob, I want to approach your point from a slightly different angle. And that's the fact that I grew up with board games. I did a lot of Avalon Hill games when I was younger. And to me, at one point in time, the board game genre was dying out, except for people buying multiple copies of Monopoly, which never seems to die. And then Eurogaming came along and sort of revived the whole industry. And I think a little bit of that is sort of the, the same thing that happened with strategy games on the PC. You had, you know, they were getting more and more complex, and you got things that are still reasonably successful, like the Total War series that are with their complex UIs. But now we're seeing more interesting games too um, on the PC that on the PC as well as other platforms that have simpler, simpler and leaner in interfaces. So I think Wait, that's a, that's all an interesting trend. I, I think that one thing that's happened is that I think as consumers of technology, we've become much more discriminating about interface design. Period. And so you can have, uh, you can take a very complex game. I go back to Sins of a Solar Empire, which is as complicated as any game of Advanced Squad Leader I ever played. It's as complicated as, uh, you know, any, any uh, you know, crazy Grognardian paradox game I've played. Um, yet it's got a beautiful, simplistic, easily approachable interface for that complexity. So I think there's actually two things going on here. I think you can do a lot with interface design that frankly, a lot of strategy game designers don't even try to do. And I'm hoping that's changing. Well, we're I want to have an entire episode devoted to UI 
uh, later in the year. Just got to find the right industry guest to do it. Is that another way of saying but, shut up, Julian? No, no, it's a way of saying <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a way of saying you're absolutely right, and uh, we should explore that over the course of an hour. But one one thing that I'm left wondering is, you know, if I if I fire up uh, you know the PlayStation Network or you go to your 360 and fire up XBLA, you find this rich selection, relatively rich selection of board game conversions, right? And they're actually fairly popular. You don't have to look very hard to find a game like Settlers of Catan, um, the new Panzer General. What I'm left wondering is why is the PC being left out of this? Tiny revolution. It does feel revolutionary to me that we're well, all seeing the, these all the board, board game conversions on the, all the board game conversions that run on the PC run in web browsers, and there's a ton of them out there. Right. Uh, so you'll just, you go to some of the German websites and some of the other websites. Uh, I, I belong to a site that I go to very rarely, but on occasion, called uh, Game Table, and mm-hmm. you know they they have a ton of, of board games that you can play online, and so it's all web based now. That's why there hasn't been standalone executables that run on your PC. But but the thing that's interesting about Game Table, because I think Game Table is a great experiment in 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 where technology hasn't quite gotten it right on strategy gaming. Game Table, they do a lot of I think very good work at trying to create community around these games. You know, they run competitions, they run tournaments, they they uh, you know run lots of opportunities to come in and get everything for free. Uh, and and ultimately, they're trying to recreate that face to face experience. And I would argue that. We went through a, a part of what part of the reason we've gone through a bit of a desert period in strategy gaming has been almost precisely because the technology got good enough, and I'm not going to get the right years, but maybe say 2000 to 2004, the technology got good enough that we had really really strong AIs that were almost as compelling as playing against a decent human opponent for a lot of different genres of games. And and what's happened is I think there's almost a little bit of a backlash now where people are saying wait a minute, it's actually not that much fun to play a really well-written AI compared to, you know, going to Rob's house and actually hitting him in the head with something, right? Really engaging in that community experience. And I think what we're starting to see is... I love how, I love how punching Rob in the head is engaging in a community experience. It is. It's a beautifully best, engaging... That's the best euphemism of the year. But but I look at something like, you know, we've mentioned the small world implementation on the iPad. I'd point to the recent rollout of Risk Factions, where these are games that are designed as two-player, multiplayer experiences, not AI experiences. And I think that's a great thing. I think it's just sort of taken the strategy genre a while to catch up to what we knew to be true during the Quake era. Although uh, Days of Wonder is going to be updating Small World shortly, if they haven't already, with uh, four-player and AI. I would love AI in that because that's you know I just don't get enough chances to play. But but you know things like Brett Spielwelt, which I think you were alluding to when you were talking right. about sort of German websites where you can go play these games. I couldn't remember you know, how to pronounce it. I, <laughs> you know, there's there's no AI in that world, and frankly, that's part of what's so great about it is there's enough of a critical master that you can say I want to play Agricola, and you can show up, and you don't have to worry about whether the AI for Agricola is broken because you're playing a bunch against against a bunch of German guys. Right. Well, can can we then say that's me. Well, can can we then say that that's also been one of the big technological shifts that's changed gaming? Is that I think one of the reasons you saw sort of a fall off in multiplayer and you know playing with other people the way you do, you have that community experience with board games. The reason you saw a fall off there, it never really took hold on the PC, is that you know it just we weren't as well networked you know ten years ago, mm-hmm. and now it just seems so much easier on any platform to just pick up and find yourself in a game with a bunch of strangers. Um, and you know, find yourself in good games. Um, not just- although, although I will say, I still think that strategy game developers, as a class, 
don't get it compared to how other game developers do. I mean, you look. What do you, what do you think they don't get, and how do you think they can get it better? Matchmaking. Okay. I think it's really it's. I mean, we, I, I hate to devolve this into a conversation about like little micro features, but that's uh, an important technological thing. I mean, that's one thing that Blizzard's trying very hard to do in StarCraft Two, for example. Right. Well, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think and the other thing that was alluded to in an earlier um, comment was the fact that RTS games uh, have really tended to appeal to a very hardcore audience, uh, even more so moving forward. And, it, it, you know, there seems to be very little appetite in the, to, to build and sell a game that's much simpler and easier to play uh, because that won't appeal to the uh, all the guys who really love to play those kinds of games will complain about how terrible it is. Well, and the irony is most people who buy those games don't play them online at all, but they also don't comment on the forums. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of the catch-22, right? And they'll right. sell 800,000 copies of Age of Empires 3, and they only get the complaints from the people who play multiplayer. That's right. Uh, and well, I mean, which will probably be a few thousand people. So, um, I, so I mean, we, you know, the original question you asked, Roy, was sort of how has technology changed strategy gaming for better or for worse? So, I mean, I think that there's, I think there has been actually this sort of hidden consequence of good AI, which was, I think a lot of us got really into playing comp stomps just because that was the only way we could play these games. And let's face it, not many of us have friends that will come over and play advanced squad leader face to face. I don't think I have any. Yeah, <laughs> me, I would, but I'm not close enough. Um, but but then I think there's sort of this counter revolution happening, and you're gonna just you're just gonna want to kick me in the head remotely. There's a counter revolution happening there over uh, you know in the Facebook realm, right? With Brian Reynolds developing. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, you gonna go kick ahead. me now? You gonna kick me now? No, I I was I, why would I kick you? I want to kick Brian Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the, um, there's been a, a blurring of genres as well. I, some games uh, are very have strategy game elements, but are not really strategy games. Uh, I would look at how is this a technological thing? Um, I think that that one of the aspects of that has been sort of it's always been true to some extent. The role playing games I'm thinking of in particular. Uh, I remember years ago playing the gold box games, and all you know when you got into combat, it was a turn based strategy game and. Sort of the Baldur's Gate series kind of continued that in real time, and you still see that in some of the R- R- RPGs that are out today. And I get a big strategy game sort of kick out of playing Dragon Age, not not just as an RPG, but also as a as a combat strategy game. Right. So I think there are things that satisfy that itch as well that aren't just pure strategy games anymore. Well, I mean, strategy I think is is integral to almost every genre of gaming in some level. I mean, we always have these fun little games about, like, let's talk about Bejeweled, because I can make an argument for that as a strategy game, right? I mean, Shut we, up, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> right, so... But I mean, I think that is true that, 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 you know, as we, you know, as we as gamers in the community grow, I think strategy inserts itself into our games in all sorts of interesting ways. Uh, one of the big advances, I guess, in technology and marketing... Um, well, first in technology, is it, it's, it's broadband. Broadband and easy access to broadband and always-on connections is probably the biggest change, I think, in games probably since the invention of the microchip, both for marketing and technological reasons, which means you can have uh, DRM. It's always ping to see if you're on. You can have DLC easily delivered. Um and you can do matchmaking quite easily because you're not tying up a line forever. So you can mm-hmm. wait, you know, 25 minutes to get that right match. How has the internet, the presence of the internet, changed how strategy games are designed and marketed, especially uh, how they've been designed? And I'm thinking of 
here's an example of how technology, I think, has broken strategy games. In many ways, made them better, but also broken them. The ease of patches. <laughs> well, you can, that's nothing to do with strategy games. You can it, say that's absolutely, broken, absolutely, it that's broken games like it, in general. In games, but, it's, but, but in strategy games, it's affected them even worse. And we see this especially. I mean, I, I love the people at Paradox. Uh, they're good friends of the show, and I love them all very much. But they have this reputation of the release and patch. And they will pat, get, try everything until the fifth patch um, until everything's properly balanced and everything's working right and the games don't come out pro- as designed. Now, I am not saying that games released back in the mid-90s did not have problems. They did. The difference was there wasn't a huge community that could communicate with each other, compare their experiences, and say, why is this broken? But that's a good so now thing. You right? have, that means, well, that, makes, that means we fix the games, you know. Well, it, but it also means that, earlier, that we ended up with Battlecruiser Millennium, for God's sakes. Well, it also means that developers are more willing to just kick something out the door, knowing that the community is going to just tell them tell them what their priorities should be. Well, there, it goes a little deeper than that. It's not just broken games. It's you may have a game that actually is quite functional, and the developer says, you know, I want to rebalance that because yep. that's what I want to do, and then suddenly you don't know how to play the game anymore. Well, yeah, okay. but, but the flip side of that is what's going on with Elemental, right? Where we've got this extended beta period where you actually get the community to help make the game better. I don't see that as a bad thing. Yes, and, and God bless Brad Rodell for doing that. But, uh, you know, how many, how many developers are doing that these days to, to the same extent that Stardock is? Well, I, I, I think you can say Blizzard's been doing that with StarCraft. So you, you don't, Jillian, you don't think the fact that, you know, that patches are so easy to deliver. I mean, most patches, you know, fix major big issues. But that there, there is this, this culture in strategy gaming of, you know, especially where AI is concerned. You think AI has gotten a lot better. And, you know, maybe it has. Maybe you don't have the problems you had in the AI of civilization, the original civilization where you could, you know, beat on the Zulus forever and they'd always be your friends because... Shaka's got amnesia because she hit him so hard. <laughs> uh, so you don't have that problem anymore, but you still have, in many cases, very bad AI, especially as the games get more complicated, AI that doesn't know how to use the tool it's using, and having you know the problems we've seen in the Total War series. Well, and okay, we've seen in sure, some of the parent sure, games. But, but I mean... I, and the, I, I and sometimes, sometimes that doesn't get fixed at all. I don't see how you can single out strategy gaming for that. I think that's that's a a deleterious effect that broadband has had on development of games, yeah. you know, with big capital letters. Well, I'm singling out strategy gaming because that's what I play. That's what <laughs> I, you know, oh, but I, whether this whether this is whether Just Cause Two isn't weapons aren't properly balanced or the maps have a dead end somewhere where it's not supposed to be really is of no interest to me yeah but hang on i no, i I think that's a good point though because i think somebody get somebody like take a shooter for instance um you know i mean as far as i know there are quality control standards that are enforced on most consoles aren't there yes yeah so whereas i think there is this attitude you know on, on the pc you just get it out the door and you'll fix it through patches um right and so i think plus if something's broken in a strategy game or many features are broken in a strategy game you do not have a game um you know if some dude's clipping through texture in a shooter that's probably still playable um so i think i think it's also a matter of degree i mean a strategy game that comes out in rough shape and it's you know four patches away from being done um you've just sold your customers a pig and a poke now i don't know how i feel about this though because on the one hand that does that does piss me off from a consumer's point of view. On the other hand, I don't buy strategy games at launch, like ever. 
Um, and certainly not from Paradox, because I know this is... <laughs> oh, oh, rough well, I mean, I know, I know this, is, well, this is how, how the space you, works. You, you, you're not alone. I mean, you're not alone in that. I know many people who love Paradox's games that wait for the third or fourth patch. I think the um, other, the, I want to point out some other thing else in terms of development, particularly with uh, sort of AAA titles, if there are such things as AAA strategy games anymore. And that's sort of the whole development environment, the fact that things are much more complex. Uh, I point to 3D. I remember, I don't know, Troy, if you remember this, but when Civilization Four came out, there's a hue and a cry about the fact that it required a 3D card. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. It's coming in 3D. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, but there's also sort of a, um, it's interesting to me, I, I, as much as I make my living writing about 3D hardware, even among games that are very different, there tends to be a sort of a sameness of the look with 3D, even with things like programmable shaders and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of how people comment on how unique games like Ancient Trader or Cryptic Comets games look because they're not 3D, and so they have to be more creative about how they do their artwork. And so it, it is very interesting. That, and there's no reason you can't do that with 3D except for the fact that they don't. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think 3D creates this illusion of sameness I think in the textures part, and the lighting? The reason, and- part of the reason is that a lot of companies tend to use similar game engines. So they start with a core okay. game engine. Uh, and then add their stuff to it, but at the heart, it's still that same you know middleware that they're using. Uh, and I think to some extent, 3D programmers haven't really broke. Even though there's been all this programmable stuff in the last several years, they haven't really broken out of that and really learned how to use that. But, this, but do you really feel like that's disproportionately influenced strategy games? I I actually think of strategy games as being largely immune to a lot of that. I mean, I I don't pay much attention to what most strategy games look like at all. Well. If you look at an RTS, a modern 3D RTS, even very different games like the tactical field on in uh, the Total War games versus something like uh, Dawn of War 2, you know, if you kind of step back a little bit, they look very similar. And well, sure, but but I guess I guess my point is, do 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 we as strategy gamers really give a crap? Yes. Yeah. You do. Well, okay. One thing. One thing I will say is like. Um, and Napoleon Total War is a lot better about this, but I went back and played Empire a while back, and I looked at it, and it had all Why? the... Well, just because the 1.6 patch came out, and hope sprang again, okay? It won't die. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, I, so I loaded the game back up, and yeah, it had all the... It had all the hallmarks of sort of chintzy 3D effects that, like, that every game now adopts. Like, just incredible bloom, like sun hits the front of an Austrian jacket, and like you're blinded by the uh, glowing white orb that the uh, <laughs> that is that is his uniform facing, um, and just that that is his uh, giant heart, yeah, his love of his country, and so I mean, just it has this lurid <laughs> look, these weird shadings, everything's sort of kind of glossy and greasy, and just now I, I looked at um, you know I was I was browsing good old games and I was looking at Panzer General 2 um, and I think after we stop recording I'm going to commit to it, I'm going to get it. But anyway, I was looking at the pictures there and god, that game looks so pretty. I mean, just the drawing style is so clean you know, so efficient, um, so evocative. It, it stands out and I think it would still stand out today in a way that a lot of strategy games, three, you know, 3D using 3D graphics, simply do not. I mean, well, there are exceptions. I mean, there are some games that have good 3D engines that come out and look like nothing else. Demigod, I think, is the best example of a 3D game that really looks like nothing else out there. It's where the art design, you know, took over the engine, and that's what you want to see. And that's why, I mean, Lloyd mentioned Cryptic Comets games. That's just art design 
beauty, just beautiful art right. all the way through it. And Vic's got a commitment to that. And, and I, we I, saw that in Demigod, so it can be done. Right. And and I, I really like what, uh, what Stardock's doing with Elemental 2. It has a very unique look. Right. But Crypto Comet is in 3D, right? No, but, but it has that same idea that it, it, it's, in 3D you see it in some place. You, it's still there in, in 2D, and you see it in a few places in 3D. Um, not as I think, I think Lloyd and Rob are right. I mean, do I think about it constantly? No, but I do notice it. Okay, fair enough. And then part, another piece of the puzzle is the fact that using all these tools requires significant resources that get pulled away. I mean, no strategy game is going to have the kind of budget that Modern Warfare 2 has. So they're, they're very constrained about what they can do. And if you have to wrestle with sort of the 3D engine and all those kind of things, that, that means you're not doing other things that you could be doing with the game. And I think that's, that a, has an adverse impact on the final product. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, although although I'm a little I'm a little reluctant to buy into that whole. There's always an equal trade off. Like every hour you spend polishing the sound design is an hour that could have gone into AI. Because I think that the fundamental game design often dictates those things long before you actually get to the decision of whether you're hiring another AI programmer or you're hiring a sound designer. I, don't, I think a lot of stuff gets cut. <laughs> I think that, 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 that the initial game design starts in a way, and then you realize what your budget is, and then you end up having to, you know, rush things out the door. Um, I was I'm always happy to hear when a developer tells me, you know, we're stuck to be a problem, everything's set, we're going to have the game done, you know, a month before we're supposed to have it done, and we're happy about that, and I hear that very, very rarely, and I never really believe it when I do. Uh, because I don't think that's quite how the industry works. Well, but there, I mean, I guess there are definitely examples where you can tell a game has made certain choices very early on in the development cycle, and that the resource. Can you think of one? Yeah, can you think of one? I was thinking of StarCraft Two particularly, okay, right? Because there, clearly, they have allocated substantial resources to making the multiplayer game a certain way, to making matchmaking work, to making the ladders work, right? Yeah. That, that has clearly been a focus of this game design from the whiteboard, right? Mm-hmm. And so if it, if it ships, and, and I have not played a ton of it AI because I don't think you can at the moment. I mean, there's not that much that you can do off multiplayer, is there? I haven't played it in a while. Um, no. But but if that thing ships with a crappy AI, I won't be particularly surprised. I, I'll be surprised because it's Blizzard and they tend not to ship crap, period. But um, if it ships with a, a weaker than expected AI for the single-player mode... Well. Eh, you know, it's question, this is a blizzard, which hasn't had to ship a real AI in a while. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to some extent, it's it's obvious, right? Everybody who's buying this game understands you're buying a multiplayer game. That is what this game has been designed from the ground up to be. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and, and you look at a game like Dawn of War 2, and you can sort of say the same thing. Okay, well, this is almost two entirely different games. There's a story-driven single-player game that features completely different mechanics than the multiplayer game, right? I mean, yeah. It's it's easy to see where those decisions have been made. Uh, and, uh, going sort of being more positive about technology, though, there's sort of step functions in technology I mean, that happen. I mean, we have 3D, and then we have programmable 3D. And it's interesting to see, uh, I think Rob mentioned this, the difference between the way Empire looked and the way Napoleon Total War looked. And that was a very different, definite step function in the way that Napoleon uses the CPU and, and multi-core processors. And they were able to do interesting things with it as opposed to simply making things look shinier. 
which I thought was right. kind of cool. You, you know, the units actually look different on the screen and stuff, and they have different an- st- um, uh, idle animations and stuff like that, and it's really pretty neat. It's almost like watching a real battlefield. It was well, quite remarkable to see the, to see the change in how the games looked because well, they're the same engine. But, but and, one other but thing it, that happened with Napoleon, I will say this though: I just I just finished um, Swords Around the Throne, History of the Grand Armée. But anyway, one of the things that really stood out in Napoleon Total War is that this time somebody had actually gone and made sure that the uniforms were correct. And that's a, that's, that's, that's a small thing, but the but the that's thing is, a, they no, were no, all reskinned. Some people, it's not for some people. Those are fighting words, right? You get, I mean, that's that's about knowing your audience, right? Because there's an audience of people who will like light up your forums for a year if you get the uniforms and, wrong. And, and they did, but I think it also allows it, it as that. Um, visual style of Napoleon over Empire. In Empire, they're all just reskinned textures. It's the same for every army. In Napoleon, you see all these different armies with these different uniform configurations, and I think it really adds to the look of the game. It, ha- it makes it more distinctive and richer and more visually interesting. And they, they move differently, too, which is really cool to watch. Some t- uh, a friend of mine likes to play the game basically just watching the AIs play each other. <laughs> just sort of one approach. <laughs> God, how do they do? <laughs> I, you know, I just, I just listened to his comments. I haven't actually two bald men fighting over a comb. <laughs> right, let's say you take a, take a take a bucket of white paint and a bucket of black paint and pour them down the street and watch. Actually, you know, that's how Brad Wardell plays a lot of his games. He told me that uh, we were at dinner a, a few weeks ago, and he said, "Yeah, I like to just, uh, you know, boot up my games and watch the AI play each other. I don't actually play the game." <laughs> I thought that but was it, a very telling comment. Isn't, isn't that how Bill Harris uh, figures out? The quality of a sports game doesn't he rely a lot on um, watching the game play itself? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a very just. I'm just. I'm, I've heard of it done many times, but just the idea of it happening in one of the Total War games. I'm just imagining the slaughter <laughs> as two armies stumble into each other or charge towards each other and breakneck speed. I don't know. I, I, you know go on. I, I was just going to say, I, I, and maybe I'm just being your curmudgeon, but. But to some extent, I just don't care what these games look like, right? I mean, a game like yes. Gettysburg. Well, no, but yes. a game like Gettysburg, right? I it doesn't even occur to me that like, oh, they're clipping problems because the units are walking through the rocks. Right. I mean, it just wouldn't even occur to me if I was writing. Not that I write reviews, thank God. Right. But if I was writing a review of this game, I just like wouldn't even occur to me to mention that. But if I was playing a first-person shooter, if I was playing Gears of War and I was ducking behind rocks and half my body was stuck in it. It would be incredibly obvious, and I would be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe they did this." Then, well, then you're sure, an incredibly special person. No, I think that's part yeah. of that is because there are so many shooters out there to compare them to. I mean, there's, well, there's I saw, like a whole lot of other Gettysburg games out there where you can say, right. "Well, this Gettysburg game doesn't look as good as that Gettysburg game." It's also right. something to a matter of taste. You know, I go to some of the local gaming, board gaming, and miniatures gaming conventions around the Bay Area, and you get, you go and walk in the miniature room, you get everything from the guys who are playing some of the ancients miniatures, and all they have basically is a green table with uh, flats of miniatures being pushed around, to the guys who have uh, meticulously recreated an Omaha beach, and you know, right, de- right down right. to tank traps and barbed wire. So everybody has a slightly different approach to that kind of stuff, I think, and mm-hmm. ideas of what they like to see. Yeah, and and I think it's entirely genre specific, and maybe you know the part of my brain that really cares about whether or not I'm getting texture pop in my flight simulator just is not even engaged when I'm thinking about, you know, See, charge. My suspicion is a lot of strategy gamers would. Okay, you know, I'm not even going to say that. I'm going to say, like, okay, I would like to say that. I would like to totally say, you know, I'm, I mean, really, it's all about the gameplay for me. Uh, as long as it's got good strategy, I'm there. But that's that's a lie. 
honestly. Like, I, you know, I played, um, you know, we booted up Scourge of War Gettysburg, and I really liked that game. But I was like, oh, man, this looks really rough. And it, it, but, but it also played a little bit rough, right? I mean, it had some interesting ideas. I liked a lot of what was going on. But it also played a little rough. It wasn't just purely a, I wish the graphics were better thing. Right, right. But, I mean, this yeah. this goes to why I own way more Total War games than I strictly should or feel proud of. <laughs> because and they're pretty. my war game shelf is slightly more bare than I care to admit on the show right now. So, I, I think I think it totally matters. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that can be, I don't think that can be underplayed. How much of, of uh, the fact that the strategy game audience isn't as large as the audience for 3D, or for shooters, is some of it is just not being able to get quickly into the game. Do you think that's a factor? Because I think, I think that was one of the things that sort of happened when Euro games came along. Uh, one of the again going back to Days of Wonder because I know those guys. One of their philosophies is that if they can't teach somebody how to play a game in 15 minutes, they don't publish it. And uh, I think some of that is true with uh, sort of the PC strategy games. It takes you a while to pick up most PC strategy games. You can't just jump into it and start playing. I mean, it's, I even find that oh. true for myself. I play a lot of strategy games, and I find it harder and harder every year to learn a new one because I'm getting older. Um, now that I'm actually actually doing some more writing on it, I almost have to. Um, more on that later. But uh, it's... It is difficult. I'm not sure that that's a technological issue, or is it? Or is that well, just a I mean, basic design issue? I think it's a both, I think. Yeah, I think it's a design issue. Um, I think that, that teaching people to play games is an art form, right? And, 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 and frankly, I, I'd, I'd love to be in the room where somebody from Days of Wonder talks about being able to teach people how to play games in 15 minutes because it, it's a, it's a flat-out lie. I mean, yes, Days of, I, hey, I've probably bought every game Days of Wonder's ever released. Don't get me wrong. But uh, they're, no, they're no victim from games that take an awful long time to learn. Now, one of the ways they get around that is by ramping the difficulty level up inside their games. So they create these long tutorial processes, which I would suggest is something that's pretty much, you know, stolen hook, line, and sinker from video games. That's something, you know, the whole idea of creating a sequence of 12 scenarios to teach you the game while you're playing the game is is yeah? I mean, you can say chicken or the egg. I mean, Squad Leader did it too, right? But are still, you talking about Memoir Forty Four? Well, I'm talking about Battle Lore or something like oh, that. Okay, yeah, and Memoir Forty Four. Yeah, actually, they would be the first person to say that's sort of the exception of their rule because actually, they, I don't think they sell Battle Lore. I think they sell that off, and somebody else is publishing that. Oh, is now. it Fantasy Flight now doing that? Yeah, yeah. Memoir Forty Four though, they they say that's sort of an exception of the rule, but they have a hardcore audience that continues to buy the games. That's why they. Oh, but selling. it's but it's true. I mean, you look at the Ticket to Ride franchise as well. Once you get outside the most basic version of that game, I can't teach it to anybody in 15 minutes. I mean, wait, I've tried. Wait, we aren't saying that we can't that Memoir 44 can't be taught in 15 minutes, are we? Uh, I, when you when you start adding some of the expansions and stuff. Yeah, and oh, well, plus they're sort of uh, the rules sort of expand over as you play more scenarios and stuff like that too. That right. was sort if of you thing. jump to the back of the book. It, you can't teach it in 15 minutes. Well, right, but but, but no war game has ever done that. Well, and I, I, I'm I'm not I'm not faulting them for that. I'm simply saying that, the, right. that this should, is a, this is a system. Shouldn't it have been our tutorial episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, but one thing that you know we're, we're touching on, and one thing that I find really exciting is is the idea that it seems to me like video games and board games are are much more willing now to borrow from each other and learn from each other and really sort of be in dialogue with each other and react to one another than they used to be. They, at least, you know, in my experience, they did feel like there were these separate worlds where you had these really 
Baroque, um, you know, war games on PC that were clearly trying to do what, um, you know, Advanced Squad Leader was doing, but even more so. And, you know, there's there kind of this rush to complexity. And now I'm really encouraged to see what seems almost like a movement to pare back and maybe make things a little more accessible, a little bit easier. And it seems to be paying off. How do you think it's paying off? I'm uh, Again, I'm thinking of um, the conversions available on consoles and the audience they're finding there. Yeah, it's all well and good. <laughs> do you think that also the the fact that uh, PCs have more um, have gotten increasingly better in terms of simple development tools like Flash and things like that have right. allowed indie games to be to sort of take up some of the slack? I think that's a big big thing. The advancement of things like Flash uh, and other development tools, and it's just so much great. Uh, independent development out there so much so hard to stay on top of it all people keep sending me links to independent strategy games and sometimes just very light stuff sometimes some hardcore stuff and i just don't have time to cover it all or point it to anybody into who might be interested um uh, development tools have gotten easier to use and i think that it, and and cheaper and that has led to a lot of great uh development i think the biggest you know what the biggest barrier to pc gaming is going to be not the consoles it's the laptop. Why do you say what? that? Because people are buying laptops more than desktops. If anything is going to restrict AAA strategy game development, it's going to be laptops. Because there are people who buy a laptop for work do not need a, a desktop. Discuss. I, yeah, but I would say that would present greater opportunities yep. for strategy games. They're not yep. Strategy games tend not to be, with a few exceptions, tend not to be nearly as demanding as shooters and the hardware. So you would think that I don't know. I mean, lots of lots of. I think of I, people think of the, the gaming laptop, and the gaming laptop is often something that can just run Civilization without choking. Um, it's. I don't think anybody buys a laptop second to run Crisis. But we don't. But for the for the strategy games we're talking about, the ones that are going to find a bigger audience, we don't want it to be able to run Crisis. We want to take the yeah. we want to take the WoW model, where this thing will run on any piece of crap that can plausibly operate Windows. Right. And so if if you can get someone interested in your game, they can they know it will run, and they don't even have to worry about it. And that's where you want to be. I haven't tried this, but. Do any of the new Europa Universalis-themed games, the Hearts of Iron 3, do any of them run well on an average price laptop? Not a gaming laptop, but an average <coughs> price laptop. Absolutely. They do? I mean, and this is, this is the thing that, that, that uh, you know, I keep being surprised. I mean, I just bought, I mean, I have, I have a MacBook Air I've been traveling with, which is really thin and stupid. I mean, I love it, but, it's, but you're not playing games on it. It's not what it's designed for. I can play World of Warcraft on it if I have to. That's about you, it. You, you can play WoW on my Nokia page and go cell phone. Exactly. But, but I also, I mean, I recently, because I needed a PC that I could carry around with me for a, a project I'm working on, I went and bought an $800 HP laptop. I can yeah. play absolutely every game I'm playing on it. Awesome. It's an i5. I mean, it's an Intel yeah. i5 for 800 bucks. for God's sakes. And yeah. I think the discrete, even discrete 3D graphics are getting cheaper, or get, at least showing up in the less yeah. expensive notebooks now. I mean, if you if you if you can't get a decent gaming laptop from under a thousand dollars, you are a terrible, terrible shopper. Right. I'm a terrible shopper. You yeah. are. Not that I'm looking. Not that I'm looking. I prefer to use my, my netbook. I mean, and, but, but but I mean, to some extent, I mean, to turn this back to a technology discussion, look at the kinds of games we're getting on things like the iPod and the iPad, right? I mean. 
the games that I'm playing on my iPad are amazing, right? I mean, it plays my iPad plays Civ Revolutions better than my 360 does, for God's sakes. Yes, Julian, we know you have an iPad. No, no, I, but, <laughs> but but I'm just saying this is a this is a $500 headed to $300 piece of consumer technology, which right. is rapidly becoming a default portable gaming platform, which blows the crap out of a uh, out of a, a DSi or a PSP, both That's of which true. I have too. So I'm not like right. playing favorites. I'm just saying that the strategy <laughs> gaming that I've been doing on my iPad blows both of those platforms away. Yeah, I think I think the the way they use touch interface is going to really revolutionize things. I think that's uh, it'll be interesting to see as we get more and more uh, competition in that sort of pad market to see what happens to those. How do you think touch interface is going to make strategy gaming uh, interesting or worse? Well, you know, it's interesting to, to get away from the iPad for a second. I went to yeah. um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, it was at it was at Game Developer Conference. I was at a session that was being hosted by Microsoft, and they were talking about. Uh, the touch interface built into Windows 7. Now, you can sort of argue that it's a terrible interface, but they were doing some very interesting things, particularly with the Surface and some of the other stuff they're doing. That's really cool. You guys mm-hmm. have no doubt seen oh. the, the D&D demos. Oh, don't get started on That's 20 minutes right there. So I'll yeah, so, so, saw, that at, saw that at PAX. It was, it but was they good. also showed demos of a couple of strategy games, who, which escaped me now. They weren't, they weren't sort of standard board game conversion or anything. And the things you can do sort of multi-touch and multiple people being able to move stuff around on the screen was just really, you know, you, you realize what's going to happen in the future, which could happen in the future of strategy games. And it was really cool to see that. Uh, two E3s ago, they were showing Ruse on one of those big touch tables. Ruse, which is still not out yet. Which which is almost designed for it, right? I mean, the whole right. visual interface of that is designed to be like a pinch, you know, pinch and expand interface. Yeah. Oh, uh, boy. Well, we brought up Ruse. Do we need to talk about DRM a little? Just a little? Let's talk uh, about DRM. God, uh, let's talk about DRM and why you hate DRM, Rob. Well, I mean, it's you know, I mean, I, actually, I'm not, I'm not a DRM zealot at all. You know, it's not a subject that I get, I, I care passionately about. Um, although the the Ubisoft model really does bother me, and I really worry for a game like Ruse, um, because I think, especially with niche communities. DRM hijacks the discussion. It destroys any hope of positive hype you're trying to build. It just it distorts the message and it takes the focus away from the product. And I just I see it have such a destructive influence on discussions surrounding games so often um, that for a lot of reasons I question whether it's worth it. But I really question whether it's worth it when it's being applied to a game like Silent Hunter Five, like Ruse, um, you know, or like Special, you know. Special war games where you got to get, you know, a, a particular license and then re-downloading a new copy is a pain in the ass. That right. all strikes me as very dangerous, and especially when you're a small company and you have a small customer base and you need to keep those people happy. And it's all personal relationships. DRM is a slap in the face to all of that. I agree. And I think there's diff- there's intelligent ways to handle DRM. I mean, what's what both Steam and Stardock are doing are, are pretty interesting. Um, I also think the model of that I've seen with games like uh, Mass Effect, to go, although it's not a strategy, Mass Effect Two, excuse me, it's not a strategy game. Mm-hmm. The way they use kind of DLC to sort of manage uh, DRM, or manage sales, and to manage reselling of the game as well. But uh, you could argue that that's a bad thing. But it also uh, kind of keeps a lot of the intrusive DRM to minimum. I'm not a big fan of that Ubisoft model either because, you know, glitches happen, and, and if you have a little, 
um, even a minor internet glitch and suddenly your game crashes or you, you lose your, which, your progress, mm-hmm. I think that's incredibly stupid. Well, for many of us who have wireless connections and things go yeah. in and out all the time. Well, especially if more people are, are going to be playing on laptops, which we just basically said. I mean, that's inevitable. More people will be playing on laptops, which means you got a connection that you can't really rely on all the time. Yep. But, so, I mean, I find that a little troubling. I, I think it's just, it, it always, people need to feel absolutely secure. They can play whenever they want to and, and steam and impulse have done that pretty effectively i think i mean it's very rare that i have to worry about oh my god i won't be able to play my game but you know for instance when i look at um you know the matrix store and maybe i want to buy a war game from matrix i see something that you know i get my digital copy but then i'm not totally clear on what happens if <laughs> my hard drive crashes and like i lose that digital copy like well, it's because it's it? because matrix isn't isn't valve right we don't worry about these things with steam because none of us believe that valve is going to go bankrupt ever no no it, but that's not it though i, I know matrix is going to be there too the thing is how easy is it going to be for me to get my game back storm eagle studios i own distant guns i don't have distant guns anymore even though i paid 60 dollars for it cuz I don't have the computer that it was on. And I really do not feel like going through the rigmarole of getting distant guns again and finding my proof of purchase. So to me, just hell with it. It's gone. I think that's something you got. I, yeah. I, I think that's, that cannot be underestimated. People like the feeling of ownership. You like the feeling well, the, this is my the, collection. And this is an issue because strategy gaming, I think, is, I mean, like all PC gaming, is moving more and more to a digital delivery model. I mean, Matrix is largely digital delivery. Uh, Stardock, uh, through their impulse system, uh, is very heavy into it. Steam has a huge back catalog of strategy games, good old games. Mm. A lot of the classics are all, uh, all digital delivery. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is a concern to know when that... I mean, I I was, you know, really big into having, you know, boxed copies of everything. Uh, but I've grown to really love digital delivery. Um, now, part of that is because I can actually, I have a, I have a press account at Matrix. I can find my stuff pretty quick as long as I don't lose my password. It's always there, waiting for me. Uh, whatever I. But but this is whatever I, mean, I own. But. This is an interesting side conversation on technology, though, which is that you know back in you know back in 1999, I considered mm-hmm. my PC to be kind of this obelisk. Right. And so I, I made like these these big decisions about what to upgrade and what not to upgrade, et cetera. And, and I, I preserved the data that was associated with it with like high degrees of you know, it was like Fort Knox, right? It was this big deal. Now I consider my technology nearly disposable. And so consequently, something that I'm downloading digitally has to I have to have this surety that it's gonna live in the cloud because right. the chance that I'm yeah. gonna have to wipe my PC in the next month is like twenty percent. On any given month, twenty <laughs> percent. Good lord! I don't know. Once, like every six months, don't you end up having to wipe your PC or, or, or like, edit or something? No, I I do wipe it. I though I had every to repair. Every six months, Troy just pours a coke into his PC. <laughs> yeah, and then Lloyd builds him another one. Yeah. <laughs> Coke for the computer gods. No, I, I, speaking as sort of the tech guy here, I, I very rarely have to wipe my PC. I, I, in fact, I've gone through on this particular system, that's my production system, a couple of motherboard and processor upgrades without, and still using the same version of Windows 7 that came out originally. 
Um, I, I know that Windows Seven. Well, actually, yeah, yeah but you're like that. a tech god. The rest of us just <laughs> what are you live doing? in this world where like something hey, what, goes wrong. Hey, like, wow, what, boot, what site? What site are you visiting that you need to wipe your computer every? <laughs> no, because there's like some little fiddly bit I want to try that doesn't work right or something. I mean, but you I don't fix know. The like, fiddly bit, you don't blow away your hard drive. Well, let, let's let's sort of flip the coin, flip the side, uh, flip this over the other, and look at another way. And if technology is getting more and more disposable and you have $800 laptops, you could see yourself buying a new one every year as the technology advances, and then you have to reinstall everything, right? Exactly. So you've exactly. got to be able to have access to your old stuff. I completely well, but, agree with I that. mean, to put this in perspective, it's like, I, I mean, my Steam account is currently still living off of the fact that I bought Half-Life 2 in a box, right? Now, I've bought a lot of stuff since the first Half-Life 2 in a box release where I actually typed in a code. But it's all still part of my Steam account. Now, I can't go find that Half-Life 2 box, but I have the sort of faith in Valve that it ke- it's keeping track of the fact that I once did have the Half-Life 2 box, and therefore it's not going to ding me if I have to reset my machine. You know, yeah, one oh. thing, I, I, I'm curious, though, because I, I brought it up a couple times, um, the console ports of board games and you know i really don't know how successful they've been or what the stats are like on them but i mean do you guys know i mean how big a deal are they how successful have they been well it's uh, really interesting i remember when settlers of Catan first came out on the xbox uh, sbla and i gave it a whirl and discovered that it had some kind of serious problems and and i kind of didn't look at them after that um, so I'm I'm kind of curious too. I haven't gone back since then. Uh, I, I is, bought, there, is there any I data? Every, I bought every single one. I mean, I don't think they've been everything. massively successful. Although, I mean, uh. you you heard Lloyd say earlier from Days of Wonder that that Small World was a day one profitable product on the iPad. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a question of what the format is. I would be surprised if the recent launch of Carcassonne on the iPod and i the iPhone and iPad wasn't also a day one profitable purchase because it's again, highly polished, good AI, decent matchmaking. I'd be stunned if that thing didn't sell like gangbusters. Um, now here's so, what I wonder, are they just selling to the same sort of people who play strategy games on PC or are they finding new audiences on these new platforms? Or are, they selling, or are they selling to people who say, Hey, look, I have an iPad. I can play games on it. What games are out there? Or that just no. to, to people who are board gamers and not necessarily PC gamers. I want to sort of, yeah, that's what it I is. I want to go back to a little bit of history here in, in the sense of uh, – so I've been, I've been talking about these uh, local gaming conventions I've been going to for a long time. All uh, These game conventions have flea markets, right? You know, you go in and you sell your used stuff to other people who are there. And years ago, we're talking like a decade ago, I used to take a lot of old hardware and sell it there and old PC games. And now when you go to those flea markets, you hardly see any of that kind of stuff. And people are buying and selling board games, and occasionally you'll see a couple of console games. Uh, or RPGs and things like that, but you don't see PC hardware showing up there nearly as much as it used to be. Well, P- and I think the PC hardware is disposable. I think it's the issue. Right. Retro stuff, like if you show up with an Atari 2600, people will pay for that. Uh, really? Yeah. An actual Atari 2600? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as somebody who kind of like dabbles in collecting that old retro stuff, I mean, you're not going to get a lot of money for it. Uh, but if you show up with a you know a, a solid you know a nicely preserved copy of Yars Revenge, you'll get you'll get ten bucks for it. <laughs> um, talking about digital delivery for a second, kind of taking the next level. So, what's what do you think is going to be the impact of something like OnLive? Because mm. I think OnLive is more viable for things like strategy games than it would be for shooters. Uh, Why do you say that? 
Because I think that uh, some of the... Oh, for, for our listeners, do you want to explain OnLive? OnLive is a system in which you don't actually ever download the actual content. It's actually streaming in real time. All the AI, 3D graphics, and the game engine runs on a server somewhere, and it's just being piped to you basically as a video stream. And uh, then it's picking up your responses, for, whether it's mouse click or keyboard or this little game controller, and piping it back to the game that's running on the server. Um, the question is, there's you know there's some serious sort of doubts and questions about their pricing model, but I think as a delivery mechanism uh, it may be interesting. And I've heard a couple other companies looking at these sort of server side delivery of games uh, with OnLive not necessarily mm-hmm. being the only company doing this. So the question I, is, I guess, is server side delivery and playing of games going to be something that's viable in the future? I don't think so. Yeah. You don't think in the future? I'm not sure on live is necessarily the model. The first one never is. Why do you think it's something that's... I, I think, I think uh, massively multiplayer online strategy games is a genre that has yet to be defined, and I think that's interesting. I think playing Civilization V through on live is... I mean, you're, you're talking about some strange uh, intersection of people who both are really into strategy games, but don't have a PC. And that seems like a really strange intersection to me. Uh, you know, that, you know, Civ five will probably play on every PC sold this year with the possible exception of the lowest end netbooks. So, so the idea that somebody is going to say, I really want to play Civ five. So I'm going to subscribe to these, this monthly service so that I can play Civ five just seems ludicrous to me. So, I, I mean, I think you know, strategy games are, are going in two directions. We've got the hardcore group, which I think is being well served by folks like Schaefer and, and uh, you know, and even to some extent, I, pardon me, pardon me, Troy, but by the stuff that's being done by, by Sid and by Brian Reynolds, right? I mean, I think strategy gamers are mm-hmm. getting those hardcore games in interesting and different and less hardcore ways. Yep. The intersection between that and people who are looking to subscribe to OnLive, which as far as I can figure out, is really only targeted at people who don't want to cough up the money for a console and don't have a PC worth playing anything, but are actually somehow really gamers, which I still can't figure out what that market is. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think that's slicing the market awfully thin. I I'll just, buy that. Uh, I want to do a slight change of topic here, talking about mobile stuff for a second, because I just yep. came across this little marketing uh, research company called Compete that released some data. And it is, it's very interesting. They talked about the different phones, uh, phone types, Android, Blackberries, iPhones, Palms, and Windows Mobile. Interesting thing about it is that only the iPhone has over 50% penetration of people who have played games on it. Uh, um, yeah, that, that, that doesn't really surprise me. I mean, they I mean, even Android's what pretty low. I mean, I'm looking at this, and it's maybe but, but it's, 20%. It, people follow the developers, right? I mean, uh, you, you look at just simply the volume of stuff that's out. Oh, that's uh, ridic- I, 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 can't, I can't possibly keep track of all the stuff that's on the, uh, on the uh, Apple App Store site. I mean, you know, there are like, they're like nine Reiner Knizia board games available on the iPhone. And most people who are hardcore board gamers who own an iPhone have no idea. Right, there's just so much crap out there that you have no yeah. idea that like there's actually an incredibly good AI version of Ingenious, which is Reiner, one of Reiner's best games. And I know hardcore board gamers who own an iPhone and have for like two years who have absolutely no idea. And it's just simply there's just too much. There's too many games. Right. Yep. I, what I what I use the iPhone for is little utilities for gaming. Like I have a 
little uh, utility that generates card decks for Dominion. Ooh, really? And, yes, that's yeah. Cool. It's, I it's have the really scoring cool. application for Agricola, but I don't have that one. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, I'll forward you. Uh, <laughs> I'll forward you the information on that, or I'll forward it to Troy and get forwarded to you. Uh, but it's a pretty neat little utility because it shuffles uh, it shuffles uh, the various you know stacks for you, so you can pick out and it'll generate a basically a game of ten uh, card sets that you can in, in, uh, use. That sounds awesome. Yeah, and useful. Um. So I think we're going to leave it there and wrap up. We're about an hour in. We're in a nice sweet spot. We'd like to cut off uh, the show. Um, next week's topic, well, someone else. I, I was yep. going to say, Lloyd, can I, can I say that, that on a show, which is already about the nerdiest place I spend my entire <laughs> week, this has been both nerdy and awesome. So thank you very much for joining <laughs> us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, Lloyd, you're a loyal listener and a good friend. We'll have you back. Uh, hopefully soon we want to do a proper board game show. Sometime yes. this summer, that we would be a blast. So, we have so many people who want to be on that show. It's just ridiculous. Uh, but we'll work something out, and hopefully, we can get Mr. Garrick and Mr. Abner back uh, and have a nice long talk about uh, the latest and best board games of the year. Uh, next week, we do not have a show topic as of yet for episode seventy-three. Uh, I'm thinking about the topic being where the hell is Tom, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, it's like Where's Waldo, but but with like uh, guys who were on 90210 once. If you do miss uh, Tom Chick being on our show, please check out the latest episode of Jumping the Shark, where he was their guest and he talked about uh, their topic. It's a two, it's an hour and forty minute long show, guys. So prepare to have a drink ready. Uh, but it's a great show, and if you miss Tom talking about nerdy stuff. You can go over there and listen to him, and he doesn't mention strategy games once, but he does ask if anybody wants any coffee. Um, to my local listeners, local meaning the D.C. area, I am still considering having an area meetup for readers of Flash of Steel and listeners to Three Moves Ahead for people in the metro D.C. area. I am uh, looking at probably the first or second week of August, uh, feel free to comment in the comment section if you either of those weekends is better for you, and we will uh, try to find a place that works. And well, hopefully, I will be able to announce the location about a month ahead of, at least three weeks ahead of the proper meetup. I know I have a lot of listeners in the area. Many of you have contacted me just to say hi and say we're you're local, awesome. Love to meet more of you, Lloyd. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Rob, Julian, as always. It's been great. Thank, thank you much. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Bye.